Good evening. Um, my name is um, Casey Choi, and I am a faculty member. I have to look at my own notes to make sure I know who I am. Um, faculty <laughs> member um, in the theology department here at PTS. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone. I'd like to welcome all who are joining us this evening for this year's Sang Hyung Lee lecture, either via YouTube Live or in person here in the Theron Room of Wright Library. Tonight's lecture, tonight's lecture was established to honor Dr. Sang-Hyung Lee, the Kyung-Chik Han Professor of Systematic Theology and Director of the Asian American Program Emeritus. The purpose of the lecture is to create and preserve space for the Asian American voices of the present, to empower Asian American ministers and theological scholars of the future, and of course, to remember and to pass on the legacy of the first Asian American faculty member here at Princeton Seminary, Dr. Sang-Hyung Lee. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Lee almost 25, oh yeah, about 25 years ago when I attended a Jonathan Edwards conference in Philadelphia. Um, as many of you know, Dr. Lee is one of the world's authorities on the philosophy and theology of Edwards. Even though I was a complete stranger to him and a clueless, awkward, and a very shy second-year MDiv student, at the time, Dr. Lee didn't hesitate to chat with me at length about my studies. His generosity has stayed with me for not only stoked my lifelong fascination with America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, it also sowed the seeds for my own sense of what it means to be a faculty mentor to my students. For those reasons and many more, I am beyond thrilled to have a part in remembering and honoring Dr. Lee's legacy tonight by introducing our guest lecturer, Dr. Jeanette Oak, who will deliver this year's Sang-Hyung Lee lecture. Dr. Oak is an associate professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Previously, she served on the faculty at Azusa Pacific Seminary Dr. Oak's presence here this evening is a homecoming of sorts. After receiving her BA from UCLA, Dr. Oak attended Princeton Theological Seminary for her MDiv and PhD. Dr. Oak is, a, uh, is an accomplished scholar. She is the author of the monograph titled Constructing Ethnic Identity in First Peter, Who You Are No Longer and has published numerous journal articles and chapters in books, such as Minoritized Women Reading Race and Ethnicity, Intersectional Approaches to Constructed Identity and Early Christian Texts, the TNT Clark Handbook of Asian American Biblical Hermeneutics, and Intersecting Realities, um, with the subtitle Race, Identity, and Culture in the Spiritual Moral Life of Young Asian Americans. Currently, she is co-editing a forth, forthcoming volume titled The New Testament in Color, a multi-ethnic biblical commentary. She is also writing a commentary on the three epistles of John with Erdman's. In addition to her scholarly bona fides, Dr. Oak has a 20-year track record as a church leader and preacher. Dr. Oak is an ordained minister who serves as a pastor at Echo Church in Anaheim, California. The title of Dr. Oak's lecture is The Fiery Ordeal Among You, How the Impact of 
anti-Asian hate speech and hate incidents sheds light on the nature of suffering in First Peter. I am quite eager to hear Dr. Oak's lecture, and I'm sure you are as well. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming, welcoming back Dr. Oak as this year's St. Henry Lecture. Thank you so much, Dr. Choi, Casey, for that very generous and kind introduction. It's enormous, enormous privilege to deli be delivering the Sing Henley Lecture this year. Uh, you know, after witnessing and reflecting on the impact and significance of the Gettys Hansen Lectureship back when I was an MDiv student, and I was just enjoying the beauty of his portrait back in the uh, dining hall that we were in, I remember feeling that the Asian American community also needed to have a space for its unique and varied voices and an opportunity to recognize our forerunners. And so I was a PhD student at the time when I proposed the lectureship in honor of Professor Sang Hyun Lee to the seminary administration. Because not only was Dr. Lee, as Dr. Choi explained, the first tenured Asian American professor of the seminary, but he has been a trailblazer and a bridger for the Korean and Asian American community as a church leader and scholar. The generous financial support from alumni and alumna and others had made the endowment for this lectureship possible. And if some of you here who are listening now or online have contributed to it, thank you, because this gift is one that keeps on going and giving. And I'm so grateful. It's amazing when you think about it. So I'm not going to reiterate the vision of the lecture. It's already been shared. But it was on March 5th, 2009, when Bishop Roy Sano gave the first inaugural Sang Hyun Lee lectureship here uh, it was on the other side. And I had the honor of being there along with Dr. Sang Hyun Lee and soaking in the significance of that moment. So you can imagine how honored and humbled I am, how profoundly meaningful this is for me to be here with you tonight in this capacity and for this purpose. So thank you to President Walton for the invitation and to everyone in this room and online for taking the time to be here in honor of Dr. Sang Hyun Lee. So, the title of my lecture is The Fire Deal Among You. And I want to talk about how the impact of anti-Asian hate speech and hate incidents sheds light on the nature of suffering in 1 Peter. And so you may be wondering, what does 1 Peter and Asian Americans have to do with, the, with one another? So some of the aims for tonight. The first one is that I want to answer that question. I want to attempt to answer the question, what, what do Asian Americans have to do with 1 Peter? I'm gonna offer a methodological approach that has ethical implications in terms of how we as readers perceive and interpret suffering. Secondly, I hope to offer a brief overview of the debate over the nature of conflict described um, and addressed by the author and consider with the help of research in the behavioral sciences, the psychological and social effects of such conflicts on the letter's audience. And third, I will attempt to demonstrate how the real-world impacts of criminal and non-criminal forms of anti-Asian rhetoric and violence sheds light on the situation of anti-Christian prejudice in 1 Peter. I want to argue uh, that similar to the way anti-Asian hate incidents and crimes during the COVID-19 pandemic emerged from larger embedded racist narratives about Asian Americans and discriminatory government policies, so the hostility and subsequent persecution evidence in 1 Peter arose out of both official and unofficial forms of anti-Christian prejudice. 
So first I'm gonna to try to answer the question, what is persecution? What is persecution? Now, not all, not all people agree on what this means. In fact, I was reading um, from the, what is it, the UN, that since for many years there's not a complete agreement on uh, how to define it. So I'm gonna give it a try and to see if it's, this resonates with you. So, but among yourselves, like in your head, I want you to try to think of uh, what you think, it, it, how you define the word, because it's not so given. So a lot of times the definition will have to do with some form of an individual being uh, mistreated cruelly and humanely as a result of their race, their religious identity, or their uh, political affiliation or beliefs. And another, like Cambridge um, Dictionary also talks about it as being, uh, having to do with long-term forms of that kind of uh, discrimination or harassment or mistreatment. So that is generally how it's described. And if you see in those definitions um, that you, you'll see that those definitions assume that there is conflict involved. There's some form of conflict and that that conflict involves from the perspective of those being persecuted, they are the ones, they're the victims. And so it's always kind of a contentious thing from the perspective of who's considering themselves a persecuted person. But from the perspective of Christians, a lot of them saw themselves as being uh, pursued or treated um, inhumanely or mistreated as a result of their affiliation with Christ or affiliation with the name. So nearly all interpreters agree that the author of 1 Peter writes to Christians who are suffering some form of conflict, often described as persecution, as a result of their conversion and adherence to, the, to their Christian religion. However, scholars will disagree on the nature of this conflict, what kind of persecution is reflected in the letter, and what caused the non-Christians within the dominant culture to reject Christians. So that's the situation. Everyone agrees when you read the letter, there is some form of conflict, and the author is addressing suffering but what kind of suffering? What kind of conflict? And what's the cause? So Travis Williams explains that viewed from the perspective of early Christians, it would include any hostility um, or ill treatment which a person or group face as a result of his, her, or their adoption um, or adherence to the Christian faith, like I just said before. And I wanna get that definition out there so we're in agreement with what that means. So there are uh, various views of the type of suffering or the type of persecution that's taking place. In her commentary on 1 Peter, Karen Jobes expresses what could be called the modern majority view on the nature of suffering and persecution. She writes, in general, the specific persecution referred to throughout the book seems limited to verbal slander, malicious talk, and false accusations. While these problems would also be present in times of martyrdom, the situation in 1 Peter appears to reflect a time when the threat had not escalated to that point, which indicates a time in Asia Minor earlier than indicated in Pliny's letters. John Eliot also describes the majority view when he asserts, there is no, thus no evidence external to 1 Peter indicating any official anti-Christian Roman policy that could have prompted the suffering of which the letter speaks. Nothing within the letter, moreover, indicates such a situation. First Peter itself contains no reference to Roman hostility toward Christianity or to Roman trials and displays no animus against Rome. 
The attempt to link 1 Peter with putative Roman persecutions of Christianity, therefore, has now been abandoned by the majority of recent commentators who point rather to a local harassment as the cause of the suffering mentioned in this letter. So before Job's, who attributes the letter to, to Peter, the apostle, and, and Eliot, who doesn't, Leonard Goppelt uh, in 1978 proposed that 1 Peter addresses those who are discriminated against rather than persecuted. And he asserts that the discrimination arose because Christians refused to participate in um, activities associated with idolatry. So he's even going so far as to say they weren't persecuted proper. Thus, the current consensus view, in short, maintains that the challenge of 1 Peter's readers was local and sporadic and unofficial. Um, it was that kind of hostility that stemmed from the antagonism and discrimination of the general population. That would be in contrast to, say, imperial-driven initiatives that would intimidate or discriminate against, punish, and even kill Christians. Now, the dating and attribution of 1 Peter does influence the interpretation on the nature of suffering experienced by its recipients. And it requires engaging yet another scholarly debate. So in his book, um, Persecution of 1 Peter, Differentiating and Contextualizing Early Christian Suffering, Travis Williams explains that the unofficial theory arose in large part due to the fact that early interpreters who upheld genuine Petrine authorship and dated the letter uh, prior to the state-initiated persecution, which took place under Nero's reign, so that would be after the, the fire in 64, um, that the logic goes something like this. If Peter the apostle penned the letter and Christians did not face state persecution until Emperor Nero's reign, then the nature of conflict between Christians and non-Christians must have been interpreted and localized and limited to discrimination and verbal abuse. So pro uh, proponents of the official persecution view, in contrast, held that the animosity uh, experienced by 1 Peter's Christian, uh, Anatolian Christian audience, originated from the Roman government's organized and active pursuit of believers rather than from local pop the local populace. So these interpreters, they situate or attempt to situate the systematic persecution of Christians within the respective reigns of three notorious Roman emperors. Can anyone name one of them? Nero. Nero is one of them. Domitian, another infamous one. And Trajan. Among Christians, they're infamous for being persecutors of the church. The working assumption of this official view is that the formal and widespread universal persecution of Christians was limited to one of these respective reigns, that is of Nero, Domitian, and Trajan, and that the persecution was constant and unvariated. Now, as you can see, there's a third view here. <laughs> You're waiting, right? Anticipation. There's also a third persecution theory known as the median view, which resisted the diametrically opposed either or options of the official versus unofficial theories. And although the median view never took off in popularity, you know how that is, right? It marked an important point of departure from the official theory and offered some important and distinctive qualifications that set it apart from the official view. Well, first of all, as Williams explains, proponents of the median view emphasize the conflict between Christians and non-Christians as being the result of the influence of the Neronian pogroms um, on the local populace, as well as governing officials, rather than the result of state-initiated laws, which isn't the same thing. Right? So influence is not the same as enacting a law. 
And we'll come to this point again later. This means that even after Nero's reign and in between the reigns of Domitian and Trajan, the impact of Nero's formal persecution years prior um, could have official and unofficial influence later. Persecution did not need to be initiated and pursued directly from the emperor and or the highest reaches of government in order to be far reaching. So it is plausible based on the evidence regarding the way judicial systems worked in Asia Minor, they were accusatorial, um, uh, that regional officials and locals could have taken independent and legal actions to accuse Christians of crimes. So, so the median approach also challenged the undifferentiated inevitability of conflict, acknowledging that Christians could experience persecutions in sporadic, episodic, and unpredictable ways, as well as legal, formal ways. Right? You guys following me? Okay. So the unofficial view of persecution in 1 Peter became the consensus view in the mid 20th century with the help of Edward G. Selwyn. His influential commentary offered a rigorous historical refutation of the official persecution and introduced readers to an approach to reading 1 Peter that concentrated on the informal, unofficial nature of Christian suffering. The other factor that tipped the scales in favor of the unofficial view was that the growing, the growing consensus that 1 Peter is a unified letter. Now, you might be wondering, what's that all about, right? Of course, it's a unified letter. But before the modern era, few interpreters questioned or expressed doubts about the authorship and unity of 1 Peter. Concerns among modern historical critical scholars regarding the letter's unity arose in large part because of the discrepancies to what might be hypothetical suffering in the first half of the letter, that would be 1 verses 3 through 4, 11, and references to more present forms of suffering in the second half, which would be 4.12 to 5.11. Um, so more than, uh, so the more far-reaching, life-threatening uh, forms of persecution evident in the second half versus the seemingly more, the um, less escalated and non-physical forms of hostility mentioned in the first half led many interpreters to try to reconcile the two uh, different presentations or what they thought were different presentations and assume that the conflict was somehow less threatening or life-threatening, less terrorizing and urgent than the official view proposed. Now, William faults, Williams faults the unofficial view for its tendency to overemphasize the verbal aspects of conflict between Christians and non-Christians and present suffering as an undifferentiated reality, as if people across time suffer in the same way. But if you read the letter of 1 Peter, you've got slaves, You've got wives, you've got even different socioeconomic demographics that are experiencing suffering in the letter in different forms. Paul Holloway points out the common flaw of both the official and unofficial theories, claiming that it rests on the assumption that, quote, a hard and fast separation should be made between popular animosity um, of official persecution. Either the state is acting alone or local residents are acting alone. That's kind of the either or option that's usually presented. David G. Horrell argues that the, given, um, that the given legal position of Christianity in the pre-Decian era, which is uh, prior to the mid third century, that, that the accusatory nature of the Roman judicial system in those provinces, that it would be because of that, it is, it's misleading to pose this kind of false dichotomy, this, this this con that construes the conflict in 1 Peter as being either informal public hostility or formal Roman persecution. 
Furthermore, as Holloway notes, it's a serious mistake to assume that local and sporadic somehow means non-oppressive uh, for those who are targets of prejudice, as I mentioned before. So these three views do affect the way you read some of the strategy and some of the um, uh, pastoral uh, uh, exhortations that the author is offering his addressees. So let's talk about the legal status of Christians. Back when I was here at seminary, I wrote a paper on First Peter uh, on the household codes as a grad student, and I received the handwritten question on the top. Why do Pliny's letters with Trajan matter for understanding First Peter? In all honesty, it's a fair question about the historical reconstruction. Um, it's a historical reconstruction question because whether one dates First Peter as early as 1660 CE or as late as 95 CE, we have to acknowledge that the official correspondence between Pliny and the Emperor Trajan was penned during the early second century, 111 to 112 CE around. So most Petrine interpreters who refer to Pliny, the Pliny-Trajan exchange, they do so in order to find some resemblances between the events presented, presented in the official correspondence between the two, I only had room for one part of the letter, and the situation described in 1 Peter. So Petrine's interpreters are trying to make sense of Pliny and compare notes with 1 Peter and Pliny. Is there some co common ground? While 1 Peter can reveal something about the nature of suffering and the legal status of Christians, it provides limited details, thus making it hard to say something definitive on the matter, such as biblical studies. So Williams reads Pliny's letters from a looking for different clues than just comparing. He argues that it is more helpful to ask how the judicial procedures described in Pliny compare with the legal processes that were in place during the mid to late first century in order to shed light on the situation of First Peter. So if you get a bit better, bigger, broader picture of first and second century a conflict and the legal situation, then that can help us fill in the blanks with what we don't get from First Peter and flesh out the little details we do get. The Pliny Trajan correspondence, Williams argues, stands out as one of the most important pieces of evidence, evidence on the legal status of Christians in both the second and first centuries CE because they provide not only, quote, a contemporary commentary on the nature of the legal processes by which Christians were tried, but also serve as cru the crucial link between the beginning of documented conflict between the church and the Roman authorities. That is, these letters between Pliny and Trajan help to bridge the gap in the literary material offering information about the legal status of Christians between the Neronian persecution um, of the mid first century and the later second and third century sources. So the comments of Roman historian Tacitus and Suetonius reflect the general mistrust hatred and accusation experienced by early Christians. In Annals, Tacitus calls Christianity a pernicious superstition. Nero could scapegoat Christians for the disastrous fire in Rome that you see there painted in order to suppress rumors that he himself ordered the fire to make room for his building programs. The reason he could do this was precisely because the populace already held Christians in utter contempt and associated them with all sorts of shameful and immoral practices. That is, they already had bad feelings about them. According to Tacitus, quote, vast numbers were convicted, end quote, not on account of the arson, but for, quote, hatred of the human race, end quote. 
In Nero, uh, Suetonius also describes Nero's persecution of the Christians, explaining that punishment by Nero was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to new and mischievous superstition. So, such negative allegations and perceptions of social religious deviance by non-Christian Roman authors compound uh, to uh, correspond to the Gentile depiction of Christians as evildoers, not compound, but correspond to the Gentile depictions of Christians as evildoers in 1 Peter 2.12 and 4.15, for example. Rather than assume that each emperor marked a new treatment of Christians, Williams suggests that it's historically plausible that the similarities we see in Nero, Trajan, and Decian's respective reigns reflect a continuity in the legal situation in which Christians found themselves in the first three centuries. The detrimental downturn for Christians, he asserts, doesn't begin in the second and third centuries as often assumed, but rather started during the time of Nero in the first century when it was, quote, effectively illegal. Uh, Williams get this, gets this from his doctor father, Horrell, um, uh, this term effectively illegal, but he expands upon it at length, to profess to be a Christian. So it was effectively illegal, not officially illegal. And what that means is this, okay? Um, it, if it was treated as a punishable offense uh, if one was so charged before the governing, government, governing tribunals. But it's not like you just walk around and get arrested for being Christian. But if someone goes out of the way to charge you, and there's risks to doing that, it's not super easy. If someone goes out of the way to charge you, then you could be punished on account of the name for not uh, uh, um, revoking or um, denying Christ. By effectively legal then, Williams means that while all Christians were not punished for this offense, they lived with that real burden, that real possibility and fear of being punished for being Christian. Now, Polycarp was tried and condemned primarily for the crime of adherence to the Christian religion. However, not all Christians were equally affected by this conflict, and that's an important thing. It's not undifferentiated, it is differentiated. In most cases, popular hostility against Christians festered over time. Imperial orders did not single out Christians through official decree, but rather citizens sometimes singled out Christians through private accusations, thereby bringing legal authorities into the process. So you can see how this works. It does stem out of this, the, 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 the populace, but official uh, measures can be taken into action if officials are brought into the process through the judicial system. So Travis suggests or argues that Pliny did not set precedent or mark a turning point in the way Christians were perceived and treated as criminals, but rather his actions toward them followed previously established legal precedent and patterns that reflected how it was possible um, or how it was a punishable offense in the Roman court of law to be a Christian. Now hang, hang in there with me, I'm getting somewhere, okay? If people were willing to go through the trouble and risk of challenging them, then it's possible. While it's hard to prove beyond the shadow of the doubt that the criminalization of Christianity took place before 1 Peter was written, Williams helps us consider how persecution at the time of 1 Peter may have been official in the sense that Roman provincial authorities could react to sporadic local complaints or contentions concerning Christians with the legal grounds, the authority to punish those who confess the name Christian. So you, you know, you look at chapter four of 1 Peter 4.16 as an example. 
Williams thus does not disagree with proponents of the consensus view that social hostility or prejudice served as the major cause for Christian suffering, but he raises the historic plausibility that Roman officials could play a role and punish them on account of the name without it being a widespread official law. What I find most compelling about William's argument is how he seeks to blur the clear distinction between periods of official and unofficial persecution in terms of the way Christians face inherent legal risk associated with the Jesus movement. So in sum, for this section, the anti-Christian social conflict or prejudice, as we'll soon discuss, described in 1 Peter, bears some resemblances to the state-sponsored persecution of Christians as described by Pliny in his letter to Emperor Trajan around 111-113. First Peter speaks of the hostility and persecution and suffering in the form of slander, ridicule, false accusation, stigmatization, and even possibly formal charges made against Christians by members of their communities and their cities or their households even. The author offers an ambivalent view of the state while exhorting believers to accept the authority of the emperor and the governor sent by him, making it plausible that the letter reflects the circumstances similar to or leading up to the situation of official persecution described by Pliny. Thus, in light of the letter's internal evidence um, and the author's veiled mention to Babylon, like in 513, many support a later date because, of the ref because that reference functioned to some Jews in Christian circles as a code name or a cipher for Rome after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 CE. So with all these reasons, um, a possible dating for the letter is sometimes roughly between 70 to 95 CE. It's a pretty broad range, admittedly. So the nature and impacts of social prejudice. In his book, Coping with Prejudice, uh, First Peter in Social Psychological Perspective, Paul Holloway demonstrates how the author of First Peter spends the majority of his letter trying to advise his readers on how to best cope with the social prejudice of their neighbors. Christians suffered prejudice. More specifically, he calls it anti-Christian prejudice in the form of hostile sentiments and damaging stereotypes, which only fueled more public animosity against them. So Christians in First Peter's letter faced persecution sporadically by their neighbors and possibly even suffered court-mandated punishments. However, they experienced the ever-present threat of social prejudice at a constant level, which is why Peter seeks to console them in their suffering and also equip them with strategies to endure it. While I agree that Peter consoled his addressees to equip them with strategies for how to cope with prejudice, I argue that he also provides them with a resilient sense of in-group identity that assures them that who they once were no longer defines them. By constructing an ethnic identity for people who are stigmatized and as a consequence of their faith in Christ, I argue in my book, Constructing Ethnic Identity in First Peter, Who You Are No Longer, that Peter helps his addressees disidentify with their past and re-identify as the people of God. By describing Christians as displaced but elect foreigners and strangers, Peter speaks to their foreignness in society while imbuing them with a greater sense of being God's own people who belong to God's household. He does this in order to help address these cope with the social conflict, prejudice, and subsequent alienation and persecution resulting from their conversion and adherence to Christian religion. So we talked earlier about what is prejudice. 
Now we're gonna talk about what is, no, persecution. Thank you, you're paying attention. And now we're gonna talk about what is prejudice. So prejudice, according to social psychologists, is, this is Holloway's description, quote, a negative social attitude toward members of an, un, of an identifiable social group based simply on their group membership. It's a negative social attitude toward members of, of an identifiable group, that's important, um, based simply on their group membership. Now notice the emphasis on group membership in this definition. It's not based on an individual's previous actions and character, but rather on an individual's association with a negatively perceived group. So this generalized negative social attitude known as social prejudice is apparent in, like, in a text like uh, 4, 15 through 16 of 1 Peter, as the author assumes that his addressees may suffer because of their association with the name of Christ um, in 4.14, and an identifiable group as, and as an identifiable group known as Christians in 4.16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. In these verses, we also see how being identified as a Christian has become a stigma closely associated with negative stereotypes that such accusations of criminal behaviors pose a real social and legal threat. Prejudice is thus a negative, not just asocial, but a negative social attitude toward members of an identifiable social group based simply on their group membership that involves, now bear with me, cognitive, uh, affective, and behavioral, behavioral, behavioral elements. So let me unpack that for you. The cognitive elements come in the form of stereotypes. The affective elements come in the form of feelings. And the behavioral elements come in the form of discrimination. So to see how these elements play out and appreciate the impacts of prejudice, it's necessary to consider some basic characteristics. So Holloway explains that prejudice is first of all, inherently volatile in nature. And that's because it's so dependent on external reaction and response called to external influences. Secondly, prejudice has affective elements in that prejudiced feelings range in their intensity, right? The volatility of prejudiced feelings is evident in how such feelings range in severity from ambivalence and mild aversion to extreme and violent hatred, and or can be expressed in forms like coolness, avoidance, verbal abuse, exclusion, discrimination, and of course, physical violence. A, th a third characteristic of prejudice is that prejudiced feelings can be complex and contradictory such that a group can be both admired and feared, despised, and pitied. As Tacitus's comments, um, uh, as Tacitus comments, Christians at first served as object, objects of Nero's scapegoating for the fire that he started, but soon they became objects of public pity as they continued to suffer under Nero's cruelty while they no longer were perceived as a viable public threat. And that's important. When they're considered a threat, it's okay to persecute them. But once they're stopped, they're stopped, they're no longer perceived as such, it seems cruel, it seems unnecessary. Okay. The perception of threat versus non-threat um, led to a change in public sentiment. Fourth, there's no linear cause and effect between prejudiced feelings, stereotypes, and prejudiced behavior. 
Okay, so rather prejudice feelings, um, uh, stereotypes corresponding to prejudice feelings and prejudice behaviors, they're contingently related. Okay, so give me, I'll give you an example. Feelings of hatred may lead to stereotypes about a group, but feelings of hatred may not necessarily lead to discriminatory, to discriminatory actions against a group. When prejudice becomes actionable in the form of hostile or discriminatory behavior, it's cognitive, that is stereotypes, and affective, that affective, that are feelings, that is feelings, these elements become particularly hot and troubling. Right? Discouraging, hope diminishing, because it can lead to what social psychologists refer to as system justification, which is when bias treatment is embedded in social structures. Okay. So stereotypes structure our social worlds by providing us heuristic schemas or expectations for what we see, and, and they actively shape how in, we interpret events and other person's actions and intentions. The circularity of stereotypes, um, they render it almost impossible to refute. You can really not easily refute a stereotype, especially by those who are targets of prejudice and bearers of stereotypes. So those ants, you get these, uh, you, can, you can't confirm them, but you know them when you experience them. Holloway makes the astute insight that, quote, for a group that is both admired and feared, the corresponding stereotype might be that members of this group are both hardworking and should be admired, but ruthless, thus to be feared, end quote. Now, this precarious admixture of admiration and fear aptly described the prejudice experience uh, by Asian Americans and its connection to the model minority stereotype. The praise Asian Americans receive as a model minority is fundamentally racial, breeding resentment among those who confirm the stereotype and those who are implicitly insulted and denigrated by it. So long as Asian Americans do not pose a threat, like I said earlier, to whites, they are the model minority. However, when they take up spots in college or in the job market that white students desire, they lose their status as honorary whites, and it's a precarious status and become perpetual foreigners who take over schools, communities, and institutions. So the model minority stereotype, again, serves to both make, make hyper-visible the seemingly admirable, positive, self-reliant image of Asian Americans and their cultures, while masking, in, making invisible the fact that Asian Americans have continuously reported racist-related incidents and attacks that are both overt and covert, blatant and subtle. So even when overt forms of hostility and discrimination are not apparent, the extremely subtle forms of prejudice known as microaggressions, which are often unintentional or unconscious, have big impact, not micro, but macro impact on its targets. Some examples of this subtle form of prejudice or microaggressions might be experienced when uh, people are ignored or interrupted or talked to in an altered way, disregarded in their personal space not receiving eye contact, etc. The explicit and implicit propensities to equate American identity with whiteness manifests itself in covert and subtle forms of microaggressions, such as questioning a person's birth, origins, or complimenting his or her English language proficiency, or asking the ubiquitous, where do you come from? No, really, where do you come from? Or your English is so good, you barely have an accent. These forms of racial microaggressions disguise racism in seemingly benign and well-meaning behaviors, um, but convey the idea that Asian Americans are less American and are more foreign than their white European counterparts. So in other words, 
the microaggressions amount to a kind of identity denial. The perpetual foreigner stereotype is a racial microaggression that has strong impact on the psychological adjustment of ethnic minorities, including their mental health, depression, and well-being, that is hope and life satisfaction. So to various degrees, Asian Americans, Latinos and Latinas, and African Americans report a significantly higher awareness of the perpetual foreigner stereotype toward them than do European Americans. And it's this awareness of the perpetual foreigner stereotype that contributes to ethnic minorities seeing their own ethnic and national identities as dissimilar and even incompatible, resulting in these individuals experiencing significantly more tension in their efforts to form a unified, integrated identity. So they are forced to maintain a more complex, often conflicted social identity. The last uh, characteristic of prejudice is that it's opportunistic. Contextual factors largely determine whether or not people act out on their prejudice. So Holloway points to the example of how during the civil rights movement, Southern whites were more likely to discriminate against blacks when their actions could remain anonymous or justified by another political leader or by another factor. Pliny himself attests to the fact that since agreeing to hear cases against Christians, the charges are becoming more widespread and increasing in variety, he says. Like he's wondering, huh, more people have a lot to say about what's going on with Christians because he's opened up the possibility to accuse them. What I find most helpful about Holloway's analysis is how he helps us better understand the idea that local and sporadic anti-Christian prejudice somehow suggests that it's not distressing, life-threatening, or well-being diminishing for its targets. The author of 1 Peter takes the suffering of his addressees seriously. He offers them a social strategy for how to respond to the external misperceptions of their identity and subsequent persecution. And he offers them theological resources to see their stigmatized social identity as distinct and honored in the eyes of God. How First Peter makes use of stereotypes and addresses stigma. So social anthropologist Frederick Bart, the other Bart, I know here there's one Bart, okay? He explains how stereotypes delimit rather than delineate culture and in effect function to exclude outsiders rather than accurately represent them. So in order to help Christians regard their new life in Christ as qualitatively different from their past life, the author of 1 Peter sets up exaggerated binaries between what the Gentiles and the people of God do. This helps the latter defamiliarize and disidentify from a former way of life still acutely familiar to them, but no longer appropriate um, for those who've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's from 1 3, 1 Peter. So just as Gentile, Gentile stereotype Christians as evildoers, so Peter stereotypes Gentiles as prof, the profligate others. And this is not because Christians and Gentiles share nothing in common, that they have no common values or cannot live in contact with each other. Rather, Peter perceives the struggle among his addressees to embody their new corporate identity as a people of God in the face of hostility, slander, and persecution. And so he urges them to stop engaging in fleshly behaviors that set them among rather than apart from Gentiles. He urges them not to reinforce neg negative stereotypes that Gentiles have of them. Rather, he sharply distinguishes between ethnos hagion or um, holy uh, uh, ethnicity and the uh, holy people and 
ta-ethne, the non-people of God, right? Ethnos hagion and ta-ethne, because he understands the tensions, hostilities, and the subsequent persecutions experienced by his readers as stemming not only from the fact that they are Christians, but from the fact that they are no longer Gentiles. Now I'm gonna have to move on because, I don't know, time is flying when you're having fun up here, right? So I'm gonna go a little fast. I have this whole section where I'm treating the Petrine to First Peter, um, but I will move on to the real world impacts of incendiary rhetoric and violence directed at Asian Americans. And I will return to First Peter. Um, so hateful scapegoating rhetoric has far reaching effects, especially when used as a political strategy by our nation's leaders. Case in point, Donald Trump. After the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic and Trump declared COVID-19 a nationwide emergency, he, he along with several members of his cabinet and the Senate, they named China as the cause of the disease through using the stigmatizing references such as, you know them, Kung flu, China or Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus, etc. So such language not only scapegoated China and the Chinese, but indirectly encouraged anti-Chinese and anti-Asian responses. May Nye explains that because the nativity of Chinese and other Asian Americans has always been questioned and their belonging always conditional, Trump effectively put a target on the back of Asian Americans. A study focusing on trends and bias against Asian Americans found that non-Asian Americans exposed to Trump's China virus rhetoric were more likely to perceive Asian Americans as un-American and foreign, which potentially lead, led to greater hostility towards them. So the stop, uh, 2022 Stop API Hate Scapegoating Report established a clear connection between politicians blaming China for the outbreak of COVID-19 and the rise in harm against Asian Americans. Between 2019 and 2020, hate crimes increased by 150% against Asians while decreased 7% nationwide. Between March 2020 and March 22, upwards of 3 million Asian Americans experienced an anti-Asian hate incident. And since March 19, 2020, Stop AAPI Hate has recorded over uh, 22,255 incidents involving language of that, scapegoating, uh, that scapegoats Asians and Asian Americans, not only for COVID-19, uh, but for collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party or for economic insecurity in our country. So numerous hate incidents occurred after Trump's tweets that many falsely linked Asian Americans to COVID-19. And furthermore, localized everyday forms of racism means something very different today with the instantaneous, far-reaching, difficult to monitor digital racism, racism or hate multiverse. So in the Twitter sphere alone, Twitter hashtags expressing anti-Asian sentiments increased by 174 times in the week after Trump's first tweet using China virus on March 16, 2020. So this large, this, this alarming surge in hate incidents associated with political scapegoating, it's not new. It's escalated and becoming apparent with news coverage and attention and protests. But throughout US history, immigrants and people of color have unfairly served as scapegoats for our nation's societal misfortunes, ills, and economic problems. This is like an old trope. Targets of scapegoating experience not only, they only not only suffer tremendous psychological and physical stressors, but also devastating violence and exclusion. So in this article, uh, uh, Wang 
Pandungit ex- uh, seeks to broaden the way researchers define racism, race-related racism to c- include not only the historically documented government-sponsored discrimination, such as uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, um, the first significant US law to restrict any form of immigration to the US, or this is Angel Island, the inhumane reprehensible treatment of Asian immigrants at Asian, Asia Island, Angel Island in 1910, or the incarceration of Japanese Americans in US camps during World War II. But also, they want to pay attention to the daily stressors of anti-Asian racism and prejudice that includes slander, violent rhetoric, physical attacks, and microaggressions, as I talked about. So in other words, uh, as Pong Pundingat ex- uh, explained, quote, the insidious types of slow violence, uh, the slow violence of racism that can wear down people of color's sense of self and community need to be considered in assessing the impact of racism on Asian Americans, as well as the far reaching escalated, quote, fast violence incited during the pandemic and by discriminatory, discriminatory racist laws and policies. They see the exponential uptick of hate crimes uh, against Asian Americans during the pandemic is is not new, but as spilling over into the slow violence experienced by Asian Americans in everyday exchanges in the internalized hate, the victimization stress prior to COVID-19. So such wear and tear of both fast and slow violence can have deleterious effects on the well-being of its targets. The fiery ordeal among you, uh, First Peter and the well-being of AAPI communities. The long-term impact of hateful rhetoric and slow and fast violence on Asian Americans since the mid-1800s, that's the first major wave of Asian immigration, uh, is rearing its ugly head even now with the escalation of anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents during COVID-19. And so this adds to me another layer of plausibility to the idea that Nero's blaming of Christians in 64 CE, of the fire uh, of Rome on Christians, and his subsequent persecution of them may have set precedent for Christianity to be considered a punishable offense across the Roman Empire and for the next few centuries. That is not to say in the same degree, in the same way, but there is a long-term effect of official policy or official uh, treatment by uh, public political leaders, even if it appears more sporadically and localized over the provinces throughout time, over time. So Christians in Asia Minor and Asian Americans in the US were already viewed with suspicion, fear, and hosts of other stereotypes that made them easy targets for official scapegoating. But also, they made easy daily targets for sidewalk harassment, worse discrimination, social ostracizing, slander, and the ridicule associated with the stigma of race or religion as minoritized groups um, of people. So part of the promoting and forging of a more secure and hopeful future for Asian Americans is to acknowledge and break with the past. That is a persistent intentional act, this this acknowledging and breaking with, it's a persistent intentional act that requires all Americans to reckon with our nation's legacy of violence, of misogyny and exclusion, including the US military's long standing history of discriminating against Asians in a systemic fashion. The author of 1 Peter urges believers who have become exiles by choice, that is God's and their own, to disidentify not only with the values of the dominant culture, 
also with the values of their ancestors if those values are contrary to the God's will. Believers are to have, a, have been ransomed from the profitless way of life inherited from the fathers. Peter dismisses as futile or dead end the entire way of life handed down from the fathers. I mean, it's a broad stroke, broad brush that he's doing here on purpose. Because in doing so, he rejects the value, very values, commitments, and norms that gave them meaning and coherence. And that's a big deal. But the focus on Christ's redemption in 3.18 through 19, it's not on individual sins, not, not as if that's not important, it's still important, but rather on corporate sins. God's children do not just sin because of their personal decisions, but also because of broader cultural, familial, systemic conditions. They sin also because of the inculcated, deep-seated systemic sins perpetuated uh, in their histories, passed down from their forefathers and ancestors, and still impacting and influencing them in the present. In the case of people of color, including Asian Americans, the legacy of racism, colonialism, white supremacy, and white Christian nationalism are, are the sins of the fathers that need to be disinherited. Another part of promoting and forging a less racist, more secure and hopeful future for Asian Americans is to affirm the positive value and visibility of our identities, including our suffering, which involves making Asian Americans central to narratives of race in the US. By conveying Christian identity as an ethnic identity, the author of 1 Peter does not do away with addressees their sense of identity conflict between who they are and who they are no longer. Rather, his approach strengthens the cohesiveness of their religious identity by weakening their sense of belonging to mainstream pagan society because they no longer think of themselves as typical Gentiles, but as the people of God now differentiated from the Gentiles. Peter thus detaches Christian identity from the dominant cultural values that he had early or put that had earlier put them at odds with Christian values, giving them the sense of community ethnic identity with its own distinctive culture. Part of forging a less racist, more secure and hopeful future for Asian Americans involves addressing anti-Asian hate um, and racism, both at the federal and local level. Um, as Manjusha Kulkarani, a co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate recently stated, quote, truly combating anti-Asian hate requires a comprehensive approach and one that relies uh, not on criminal law enforcement. Rather, it must include civil rights enforcements community measures, and educational equity. And lastly, part of forging a less racist, more secure and hopeful future for Asian Americans also involves a responsible and truthful use of speech. Speech plays a significant role in 1 Peter as the author presents Jesus's ability to keep his mouth from seeking deceit as an example for Christians to follow. Peter emphasizes Christ-like conduct in response to slandering and defiling speech. What Christians now know to be true of themselves because of Christ can help them withstand the pain of being falsely accused. References to speech in 3, 9, and 15 through 16 reveal that Peter, or 1 Peter does not endorse a verbally passive or silent strategy uh, toward false accusations and slander and blasphemy. Rather, in 3, 9, he urges those who follow the steps of Christ to bless those who inflict evil and verbal assaults on them. There's an action, an active blessing that's really actually a hard exhortation to follow. In today's political and religious climate in the US, Christians are often the initiators of slander against fellow Christians and non-Christians alike. The unifying bonds of Christ's ransoming blood do not, simply, simply, do not seem to lead to like-mindedness 
or sympathy or familial affection or generosity in spirit, like what's that? And mutual humility across the aisle. Um, uh, believers uh, who bear different political and theological stripes seem to have less in common with another than with those who, with whom they identify politically. For Peter, he's pretty harsh on this fact. To destroy, dissolve the unity and witness of God's people in Christ's name through slander and malicious speech is evil. But what of today's Christian leaders who conflate religious and political rhetoric in ways that promote racialized hate, scapegoating, and false conspiracy theories? How might church leaders and Christian communities see the work of unity as including a unified voice on the particular issues of anti-Asian racism and to act in solidarity with their Asian American members and neighbors? How might the work of Christian unity include the anti-racism anti -racism training and activism, for example? Now, this kind of unity is exemplified in an open letter written by Episcopal bishops of African descent against racism and anti-Asian violence. And it's cited by Melissa Borja and Kayla Zhang's article, Please Love Our Asian American Neighbors. So I'll just uh, let you look at it while I keep going. It's a great, uh, it's a great letter. So how First Peter speaks to Asian Americans, and in, this is in closing. When First Peter makes references to the five Roman provinces in Asia Minor in 1-2, he does not simply do this to name these metaphorical geographical points, but rather he wants to present his, ad his addressees who live in this vast geographical area. It's roughly um, a little smaller than the square mileage of California where I'm from. He wants to uh, address them as members of a divinely scattered yet cohesive people group. He situates his audience social locatedness in God's primordial and eschatological plan over their lives. In doing so, he enables them to see their present sufferings from the perspective of their past, that is God's election, and future, that is God's promise of a heavenly inheritance. Christians then are to voluntarily enter into and endure exile as a real but protracted reality. They have to learn to navigate living as elect foreigners in a familiar land and socio-political structure. Such socio-political displacement leads to the creation of a spiritual household that is characterized by eschatological hope and familial love and makes it easier for believers to disidentify from their former way of life. So verse 22 of um, uh, Peter describes love or Philadelphia among a community of believers, not as a compulsory obligation but as a sticky, enduring commitment to strangers who have become family because of Christ. So the word actenos can convey the warmth and intensity of love that we see in the translation deeply, like the NRSV or NIV uses it, or earnestly, as ESV and NET use it. But it can be more literally rendered constantly or unremittingly in order to express the persistent, persevering nature of love in the face of adversity. The first rendering of actanos Ectanos speaks to love's effect, or love's affect, I should say, and the second to love's effect. That is, believers express love for one another through their emotions and actions. So in context, both translations convey the kind of earnest, resilient love that binds a community toward a common purpose. And I'm ending here, I'm ending in a moment. The concept of jung helps convey both the effective and effective dimensions of Christian love. And Su Kim Park, she describes it as this deep, active love and affection that leads to solidarity among people. 
And so for Peter, love among members of God's household is characterized by a resilient fervor and affection that promotes mutual thriving and solidarity, even in the midst of forces that work to dissolve such bonds of intimacy. And so to my Asian American siblings, our suffering matters. We shouldn't diminish or hide it away. And to my, the rest of my siblings in Christ, Asian American suffering matters as does our joy. And so that solidarity, being in mutual thriving and solidarity, these bonds of intimacy are what First Peter really does encourage and exhort us to do. So in conclusion, why should we care or understand the situation of the original audience of First Peter? Like, why did I do all that work, right? Given that I'm also talking about Asian Americans, it's the Sang Hyun Lee lectureship. First, I think it, it's important to see the situation as it relates to Asian Americans, because it means that racialized experiences of Asian Americans can illuminate the social conflicts that First Peter's addressees are experiencing due to their identification as Christians. So just as the experiences of Asian American hate and violence shouldn't be universalized, so we should be careful not to universalize the experience of First Peter's audience. What do I mean? So I try to demonstrate over the nature of the debate over the nature of persecution that it is neither uh, either or, but it's both and. Attempts at plausible historical reconstruction of the conflict between Christians and non-Christians and their legal status in Asia Minor during the time of First Peter can be illuminated by the experience of Asian Americans, which offer another way to describe suffering and prejudice as both and. So while First Peter doesn't give much information about the legal situation of his addressees, so that we could be so certain about the situation, studies from behavioral sciences and on Asian American hate and its effects offers another inroad into the conversation that helps flesh out the historical plausibility of the median view. In light of the US colonial past and the undeniable racial underpinnings that appeal to the greatness of America's past, the idea of being ransomed from the ways of one's ancestors seems more applicable to say heathens or foreign nations who hold un-American values and commitments and norms, right? Than, to, uh, than it does to white American Christians who determine what it looks like to be a nation under God. And so I'm ultimately suggesting here that those who have been dispossessed of their lands or oppressed by colonial forces or marginalized by white Christian nationalist narratives or who are among minoritized and dominated classes may have the interpretive edge in understanding 1 Peter's message. This is because the letter is addressed primarily to the subaltern, that is to people in subordinated classes or dominated members of the household with little to no means for social mobility. And they may not relate to a lot of us in this room, if we're honest. Such readers in similar subaltern conditions also have the interpretive challenge of reading a text like 1, 18 through 19, not as a further degradation or disavowal of the ways of their ancestors, which is so often the motif. Think about um, indigenous uh, Americans um, who, or the schools in Canada, where kids have had to disavow their heritage and their families. Um, such such uh, interpreters have uh, now the challenge to uh, be reminded that while there's good in every culture that can be promoted, there's no single culture, ethnicity, race, or nation that can be equated with the kingdom of God. While such governments serve law and order better than others, other, all governing authorities are subject to corruption and the abuse of power. All Christians have the sins of the fathers to confess, to disinherit, and to be ransomed from. However, Christians from the dominant classes 
the majority race or ethnicity and or imperializing nations should take greater caution not to conflate their social privileges and powers with their identity as a holy nation, chosen race, royal priesthood, people of God's possession. Thank you.